Father, our prayer is that you will, as you always do, bless the study of your word, Lord. We pray for all of those in Haiti, Lord. We pray especially for the Lewis's family and pray that you would preserve them, pray that you would provide for them, pray that you would help them to be faithful in the midst of disaster, Lord, we thank you for we have in this country, Lord, where we have had peace. Lord, we thank you that we are able to gather in peace, Lord, and help us to put um, our problems, our anxiety, a time where we can concentrate and think rightly concentrate on your word, Lord. We pray that you'll bless the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to continue in the book of Acts today. My goal was to at least cover a chapter today. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to get a whole chapter. So I think we're going to think we're going to look at the first two sections. And it's probably marked off in your Bible as it is in mine. But there's a couple sections that we're going to look at today. The first section is the arrest of the apostles, Peter and John. And then secondly, the second section is going to be this marked out section that that recalls for us the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the Christian church. And there is a third section that I think will tie in better with chapter 5, at least the beginning we'll look at next time. So we're just going to walk through these couple of sections. We're going to draw some some applications, some summarization at the end of each one, and and that's what we're going to do. So let's begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Here we see the persecution beginning. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, so just to remember the setting, the setting is here, the apostles Peter and John have gone to the temple. They uh, were going up for the prayers. It was the hour of prayer. Uh, They performed the, the healing, the miracle on that man who had been crippled since birth. And... Due to the miraculous nature of the the, the miracle there, the crowds gathered and they began to preach Jesus to the crowds. And so that's, that's what's going on here. As they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, it says, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the two things here that annoyed the leadership, number one is that you had these untrained, these really unrecognized, these ordinary men, they were teaching the people. Now, this was their job. This is what they took glory in, was that they were the teachers, they were the leaders. And now you have these um, nobodies grabbing the attention of of the people, of their people. And so really it's just jealousy, right? They're jealous that these unrecognized people are are teaching. Secondly, they don't like the fact that Peter and John are teaching the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. Why, why would the Sadducees in particular have issue with the teaching of the resurrection? 
Anybody know why in particular they, they don't like that teaching? The Sadducees, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Um, they don't believe in a lot of things, actually. They were like your, your liberals. They, they don't believe in supernatural. They don't believe in angels, these kinds of things. Um, interestingly enough, maybe an aspect to why they err in their theology, it's actually a canon issue. They actually only consider the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, to be Scripture. And so they had very, in a sense, limited revelation as far as what they deemed to be the Word of God. And so they don't believe in the resurrection, which Jesus actually challenged them on that before in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember where he made that statement concerning um, how God is the... The, the God of the living, not the dead. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Um, he'd already challenged them that even in the Pentateuch, the resurrection is there. God is the God of the living. So that's the only way that God could say he's the God of Abraham is if, if, if Abraham is alive and will be alive. So the theme of the resurrection, this will be, as we move through the book of Acts, this is the theme of the apostolic preaching. The resurrection from the dead. Uh, this was actually, you could say, um, this was the, one of the qualifications. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, where they're picking another apostle to replace Judas. Um, there it said that one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's the job description of an apostle. So that's what you're going to see the apostles teaching is the resurrection. Verse 3, they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So it's too late for a trial. It's already evening. The apostles are put into jail overnight. And of course, this is bad for the apostles, but it's worth it because verse 4 says, but many of those who had heard the word believed... And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we're at 5,000 believers. That's just men. So they say if you add on probable wives and a child or two, we're at 15,000 believers in Jerusalem this quickly. That's by some of the estimates. People give different estimates. Some people said like 40,000 people would have been in Jerusalem, 60,000 Either way, this is about a quarter of the population is already Christian. That's how the Spirit is moving in, in this situation in these apostles. And, and really not much has happened even this far, right? You had Pentecost where 3,000 were saved and then through this preaching and, and the probably evangelism in between uh, Pentecost, they're up to 5,000 believers. Verse 5, on the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So this, this group of leaders that's named off here is, is really describing what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is just the... Well, it says the members of the high priestly family, but it includes just the religious elite, the, the teachers, the scribes, 
if you look at some of those names there, you may recognize some of them. Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. So he was high priest with John the Baptist. Um, he actually spoke with Jesus. Caiaphas, you remember Caiaphas, he's actually the son-in-law of Annas. He becomes high priest. He's high priest during Jesus' crucifixion. And then you have a guy named John, who is Annas' son. He actually takes over as high priest after Caiaphas. And so these are the high priests in a sense. It's interesting that Annas actually isn't technically the high priest at this moment, but he's the one called the high priest, but they kind of just, commentators just kind of say that's that's how prominent this guy was, um, is that he still bears the title of high priest. Maybe like we call President Trump, right? Just kidding. Yeah, they carry the title after they hold the office. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man is known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter's answer to their inquiry about by what name or by what power that thing was done, Peter gives a very direct answer. He doesn't give, like Stephen will give, a chapter-long recounting of Jewish history or anything like that. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ was done. So he says directly, this is by the power of Jesus, this is by the name of Jesus. He follows up with another jab though, as he previously has done uh, in his first sermon with these guys. He says, whom you crucified. The one healing the lame is the same one whom you crucified. He follows with another jab. He says, whom God raised from the dead. So you crucified him. But God raised them up. Uh, The religious leaders then have found themselves fighting against God. Lastly, an uppercut, he says, he quotes, he references from Psalm 118. The cornerstone, the one stone that supports and gives direction for all the other stones that are to build up the now spiritual house of God, the spiritual temple of the Lord. They have rejected the central aspect of God's work and God's building. And then in verse 12, so there's no confusion, and there is salvation in no one else. So there's no salvation in their own righteousness. There's no salvation in their law keeping. There's no salvation in Moses. There's no salvation in any any of these high priests. No salvation in the temple. God has raised Jesus. And so it's Jesus 
or nothing. Now, the response from the Sanhedrin, and as you might have guessed, it's not repentance. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, it's interesting that John's included there because the commentators keep reiterating how interesting it is that John never, or at least it's not recorded that John ever says anything. It's always Peter speaking, which silent John, they keep calling him. But they rec- his boldness is included here. So I think he probably was um, speaking as well, but they definitely recognized his boldness. And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, this is interesting to me because these biblical scholars, these scribes, these high priests, this council... They don't offer up any counter-biblical argumentation to show why, in fact, Jesus isn't the Messiah. They don't refute any of the interpretations that, that Peter is given. They don't contradict the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. They actually completely accept the fact that a miracle has happened. That's interesting, right? They don't even deny the fact that the miracle was performed. They don't say that it was a false miracle. They don't say that it was performed through Satan. They actually accept the reality that the miraculous just happened before them. And so, instead of dealing with the reality of who Jesus is and what just has happened, they resort to threats. Their last-ditch effort is to resort to threats. And so, I just had a note here to realize that It's never an intellectual issue for people, right? If you think about everything that these guys have been exposed to, the revelation of God, the fulfilled prophecy of Jesus, the apostles have pointed out to them, uh, they've all spoke to Jesus, right, before this. Jesus has stood before them and refuted them and and shut their mouths multiple times, making biblical arguments. Um, the, The supernatural has happened before them, and yet you still have unrepentance. You have unacceptance. It's, it's irrational, right? It's crazy. It's, but just let that remind you that it's not an intellectual issue. It's not a battle of the, the mind only. It's a spiritual issue. Um, I think I have a note later, but I'll just say it now by way of application. I think the takeaway for us needs to be that um, prayer must be part of our evangelism, right? Because we need God to say, we need God to open the mind. These, you can give a spirit-filled gospel presentation. The Son of God can come Himself and resurrect from the dead. You can do the miraculous, and people won't believe. Isn't that crazy? It's 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 crazy. 
But this is the way that God works. So it's not the data, it's not science, it's not proof, it's not argumentation. It's the Spirit of God that needs to raise the dead. That's what we need to happen. And you also see, I just said here, is that dead in trespasses and sins is not hyperbole. These people are spiritually dead. They couldn't have any more revelation than any more grace, any more evidence than what they're getting, and yet they, they have no answer. They just resort to threats. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So these apostles were brought before the rulers of Jerusalem, the leadership of Israel, and they don't cave. They refuse the command to stop preaching. And nevertheless, they're released. Why? Because these leaders of Israel fear man. They fear man. They let them go. So we're going to turn right to application from from everything that we've just looked at. I know I've mentioned a couple things. Uh, Application number one. There is a time to disobey the authorities. I think I'm going to give Greg the title, Listen to God Rather Than Man for this one. And so when are we able, when should we disobey the authorities when they require us to sin, right? Would that have been your answer? If the authorities are asking me to sin, I need to disobey the authorities. Now, it's interesting to note to me, and I don't think I've realized this before, and I don't know why I thought of this, but maybe this is, will be helpful to you is, is notice that the apostles here, they're not disobeying the Jewish leadership because the Jewish leadership is asking them to commit a sin of commission. Right? The, 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 they're not asking them to blaspheme. And they're saying, well, I can't blaspheme, so I have to disobey. They're not saying, I need you to go commit adultery or I need you to murder. Well, I can't go, I don't, I'm not going to commit a sin, so I have to disobey you. They're actually being asked or required to commit the sin of omission, right? The, the leadership is just saying, don't do something that God has told you to do, and they have to disobey, and they have to do it anyways, which is interesting because to me, the uh, modern day scenario that is similar to where we're at in regards to this would be something like the government saying, you can't gather. Don't go to church. I think a lot of Christians are kind of like, well, I mean, they're not asking us to do anything sinful, right? They're just saying, don't do something. So, you know, the problem is the Bible does command us to, to meet, right? Where does the Bible command us to meet? You say, Hebrews? Hebrews, right, good. Yeah, it says, do not neglect the gathering, as is the habit of some, right? So there's a direct command not to do that. 
I would say, uh, maybe going forward and maybe next question and answer, you can expound upon this, kind of our philosophy behind this, but um, I would say that there could be a time where we would meet, right? Like, say, that, say there was some sort of, let's just use the scenario of outbreak, where, hey, whoa, like, we need to, let's, let's not meet, you know, if it's Ebola virus or something, we, we're all going to die if we do it. Uh, maybe there might be a time, but that will be for Tafik to decide, right? Not the government. That's not their role to decide when and how and we're going to meet. Um, so I'm thinking that's a pretty parallel, this sin of omission. I think a lot of Christians are comfortable with, hey, well, they're not asking me to actually go out and do something sinful, so we need to do it. But they're actually asking you not to do something that God has commanded, which also is sin. Second application here. Persecution is nothing new for the Christian. Persecution is nothing new. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, Jesus says in John 15. I think for us, uh, it's going to be hard to deal with persecution because we've enjoyed so much peace. It's going to be hard to deal with persecution because we have so much. We have so much to lose, right? We, it's, if we didn't have much, there wouldn't be much to take away and we wouldn't feel like it was that weighty or hard of a trial. But we've had it so nice. We have so many comforts. We have so many things. It's going to be hard for us. Uh, but don't be deceived because if you're a Christian, this is what you signed up for. This is what you signed up for when you publicly, publicly united yourself to Christ through baptism. And so if persecution comes for us, the goal will be to rejoice, to be counted worthy, to suffer for his name like these apostles will. That's what they're going to do. They're going to rejoice. Point three, do not be discouraged by unbelief. I can't remember if I've made this point already. Uh, I remember talking about it with some of the brethren, but it just impressed upon me again, as I've mentioned, how crazy it is that these Jewish leaders don't repent at all the revelation and all the grace that's been given to them. So don't be discouraged by the reality of unbelief, because these apostles were doing miracles. It says in their preaching that they were full of the Holy Spirit. Um... We could preach the gospel full of the Holy Spirit, but I don't think we're going to be accompanying our preaching with miracles. We're not going to be raising the lame uh, who have been lame their entire lives. So these apostles, they're apostles of Jesus Christ. They've seen the risen Lord. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They can do the miraculous. And yet, unbelief. Unbelief. I, mean, I think we get discouraged when we preach the gospel, right? We, we can be tempted to think, Maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we need to present the gospel in a different way. Maybe, you know, why aren't people believing? Um, verse 16 said that a notable sign, this is the leaders speaking themselves, self-condemning themselves, a notable sign has been performed by them and we cannot deny it. That's crazy. Unbelief is insane. It doesn't make any sense. Instead of repenting, they seek to silence the apostles. Yeah, I think, I think some of us even here today, 
have been given the gospel, have been given the word of God, have seen the work of the Holy Spirit in others' lives and the preaching of the word over and over and over, and yet remain unaffected. And it's, and it's strange to people who are Christians, right? Even though we ourselves, most of us who grew up in church, we're in the same scenario, it still boggles the mind. Um, somehow I'm not so amazed by my previous unbelief as I am in the unbelief of others, which doesn't make sense either. But um, it's like once the blinders, once the veil has been removed, it just everything makes sense, nothing else does make sense and you almost forget well how can people not believe how how can they not get it it's it's a kind of paradoxical in that sense but i think really in the same way that we can like stand in amazement of these jewish leaders for not believing we should in a sense and i think it's okay to be amazed at the unbelief of even those amongst us uh with the especially with the word of god the 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 richness of the Word of God, the amount of the Word of God that is preached in our church, right, for unbelief, that's, it's, that's amazing. It, it really proves the Word of God that people are, in fact, dead. I actually, in Mark 6.6, 6, put down this text where Jesus goes and preaches in his hometown. Jesus goes to Nazareth, right, and they don't believe, they don't repent. And it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Even Jesus was like, unbelief is, <laughs> is a strange thing. Why, how can they? It said, he, you know, that's the, the troublesome text where it says he wasn't able to do many miracles there because of their unbelief, right? Um, he did do some, and they still yet, the very town where Jesus grew up, they all knew him. They, they, they couldn't have held, held a sin against him. Why didn't they believe? They had nothing against him. There was no reason for them to reject surely the clarity in, in the, in the spirit-filled proclamation that he was giving, and yet unbelief. So my application of that was we need prayer with our evangelism. We need God to act. Fourthly, the fourth kind of takeaway here, I just wanted to read off for us. I have a list from just this section uh, that you could say are like the adjectives that are used to describe the characteristics of the apostles that are mentioned here. And I just said, these are worthy of emulation and copy. Let me just list them off for you. First of all, and don't take this the wrong way, but it says that they were popular with the people. Why were they popular with the people? Well, I think the rest of the characteristics of their lives is a reason. It says they were full of the Holy Spirit. It says they've done good deeds to the needy. They're persuasive despite just being ordinary folk. They obey God rather than man. And lastly, they are bold. So I think those are characteristics that we could emulate. We need to be found doing good deeds. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. We can be persuasive. How can we be persuasive? Um, I think to the level, to the degree that you know the Word of God and implement the Word of God is your persuasiveness. I don't think that's speaking to an intellectual, like philosophical ability to argue. I think the power, right? The Bible tells us that 
the power of God to salvation is, is the gospel, is the word of God. Uh, to, the, to the amount that we can rightly use God's word to argue equates to our persuasiveness. We need to obey God rather than man. We need to be bold. And I think in that sense, we could be popular with the people. All of those are recognized traits. People won't be able to, de- to deny, right? On the, on the day of visitation, they will have to say those people were good people. Those people were righteous people. So that's the first section of chapter 4. Second section, I'm going to add one more characteristic with the second section. And that is that these saints prayed. The second section of chapter 4 is the prayer of the saints. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. Now I thought this was an interesting description of the church. It's an interesting description of the brothers and sisters in Christ. It calls them their friends. Right? That's not a common way that the Bible describes the, the Christians, right? But here Luke uses that word. When the apostles were released, they went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's a good way to start your prayer, right? Sovereign Lord, You who created everything. So the church here recognizes, affirms the sovereignty of God. And that's good, especially in trial. Cannot the God who created everything orchestrate and control His creation to benefit His people and to glorify Himself. He's the Creator of everything. The Sovereign One. And an interesting point here, in a sense, and you don't really see it in the English, but the Christians here, by calling Him Sovereign Lord, they're actually recognizing and reminding themselves of who they are in relation to this Sovereign One. And they're doing that because they, they don't refer to Him here as Kyrios, Sovereign Lord. It's not Kyrios. They're actually using a different Greek word that gets translated Lord. It's not that it's an inappropriate translation, but they call Him Despotes. Despotes. It's actually just one word translated Sovereign Lord. A Despotes is someone who owns slaves. Like we kind of have taken that word and and use it as a negative connotation for a despot, right? A despot is somebody who um, by force rules a country or rules a people and enslaves them. It has a negative connotation. But here, because these Christians have a good master, they refer to him as a despotes. The Christians recognize their place in relation to their master's will and they're ready and they're willing to suffer if need be. What else does the church recognize the sovereign Lord has done? Verse 25. Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, 
said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here the church is quoting the Bible in their prayer. They're quoting from Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2 has this rhetorical question of why. The rhetorical question of why. Why would somebody rage against the Lord and against His anointed? To rage against the Lord? To fight against the Lord? Again, this is insane. This is, as Psalm 2 says, it's vain. It can't work. There's no use fighting against the Lord of glory. Who would think to fight against the Lord of glory? But sin knows no bounds. It's, it's, it's troubling to us, right? We think about the reality of Satan who was in the very presence of God, who's seen everything you can see in a sense about the majesty and power of he knows full well who God is and who he is, and yet somehow he thinks in his mind that he can fight against God, it's, it's insane. It's insane. It's crazy that we would all, that we wouldn't from the youngest ages fear the day that when we, will, we will stand before our Creator. It's crazy that we don't do that from the youngest of ages. And so, as Psalm 2 says, don't harden your hearts, but kiss the Son. Don't fight against the Son, lest He become angry with you. Kiss the Son. Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I like that description of salvation. Take refuge in Him. Find your safety in Him. Kiss the Son, and you will be blessed. The Jews in Jerusalem here have seen all these miracles that Jesus has performed. And what do they do? Verse 27 describes it in this way. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, to take place. So the people, all the people actually, against all reason have gathered together against King Jesus. And yet the church here isn't losing heart. They don't seem distraught. They still seem confident. Why? Because they recognize again that none of this is taking place outside of God's sovereignty. That brings comfort to them. They recognize that everything that's happening from the death of Jesus to the imprisonment of the apostles to the continued in fear that would come from continued persecution, they recognize that all of this is according to God's all-wise plan. And so that's a comforting thing to remember. Uh, it's comforting to have a sovereign God. I thought... How scary would it be to have a God who's not sovereign? That's terrifying. You mean he's not 
controlling and in control of all of this, that's terrifying. So thank God that we, that we recognize this reality. And I know a lot of times we don't. I would say every time that we worry, every time that we're anxious, every time that we fear and lose control as a result of it and lack faith, it's because we don't really believe that God is sovereign. The Bible's clear about it, but we don't believe it, and therefore we panic and, and we worry. Now, because God is sovereign over all, He is the one who we should look to for justice and for grace. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So three more requests here are made by the church in their prayer. They're making requests to God. Number one, and this is kind of just going to be the application for this section. Look upon their threats. Not so much as a request as it sounds like a command, right? Look upon their threats. Lord, Take notice of their evil. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that the church doesn't go off into some kind of lengthy imprecatory prayer against those who are persecuting, right? They simply say, Lord, take note of their threats. Lord, you know. Lord, you're aware. Lord, be aware on our behalf of what's happening. Do what you seem right, and they move on. The Apostle Paul will have the same mindset once he gets saved. He's likewise going to recall the teaching of the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32 that where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Second, they say, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, this is interesting because you see the early church here. They're not simply praying that their trial will go away. But they're actually asking God for the grace to overcome the trial, to be bold despite the persecution. I think this is an interesting example for us that maybe we can be more inclined to pray for strength in the trial, to overcome the trial versus what we normally do, which is just help me to escape the trial. Um, How much more encouraging is it when you have the grace to be faithful through a struggle and the Lord provides and you get through it versus the trial just goes away and you're still in the same sanctification you were before? Albeit thankful that the trial went away, but have you really grown in your faith in the Lord by just the trial going away? Not like you would if, if the Lord provided you through it. So that's an interesting example. Lastly, number three, they pray that God would continue to work the miraculous. They ask God to continue to work the miraculous. The Lord has been mightily using the miraculous to this point. He's gathered crowds through the miracles. The miracles have continued to attest to the Son's messiahship. Uh, 
And who would not want that to continue? Who would not want the miraculous to continue? And so they ask. They ask the Lord for this as well. Now, lastly, the Lord's response to their prayers. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Instant, the Lord hears their prayer. He not only hears their prayer, He responds in such a way uh, by shaking the building. Wow. Never had that happen in one of our prayer groups yet. Happens in the South sometimes. In the North, no? In the South, it happens. Um, but let's say the house wasn't shaken. The answer to their prayer, it says they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what they asked the Lord to do. They didn't ask to shake the house and show, the, show himself to them, right? They asked for boldness and the Lord answered. And so it says that they went out from there speaking the word of God with boldness. Um, maybe we need recognize the answers to prayer more often, right? Like, nobody really likes to do evangelism, right? Like, it's very nerve-wracking. You have in the back of your mind the fear of, wow, so what if something goes wrong? What if somebody hits me in the face? What if I don't know the answer to some question and I look like an idiot, you know, and then I'm a stumbling block to this person who doesn't believe? You know, like, you, your mind just races with all the things that never happen. Um, but those instances when, you, when you're faithful, you show up, you share the gospel, right? Um, and the Lord blesses it. And you're happy, right? But that was an answer to prayer because you prayed, Lord, please provide. Like, please keep us safe. Lord, please help us to be faithful. Please give us boldness, you know. And he does that. He answers that prayer. Even though in and of ourselves, we think, oh, this is going to go bad. Like, maybe I'll get lost and tell the guys I couldn't find the spot, you know, like. You're fearful. But the Lord has answered that prayer many times and, and we need to recognize that and, and be thankful. We'll finish that next section next time, right? Let's pray. Well, Father, we do just echo, Lord, this prayer of the saints that that the sovereign God would watch over us, Lord, that you would direct our steps, Lord, that whatever comes our way, Lord, that we would recognize it's from your hand, Lord, that we wouldn't fight against your providence, Lord, but that we would be settled in our hearts, that we just need to be faithful. Lord, help our families, Lord, to likewise be willing to sit under your good providence in our lives, Lord, that we would have the joy of, if it's your will, Lord, if it comes our way, that we would suffer well, that we would be able to count it joy to suffer for your name. Lord, we pray for this grace, Lord, that despite how hard it might get, Lord, that you would grant us boldness. Lord, that you would grant us the ability not to fear, Lord, to trust that your gospel 
is the power of God unto salvation, Lord. And we pray even now for the preaching of the Word today, Lord, that Your Spirit would be at work, Lord, that today Your Spirit would overcome the deadness of sin, Lord, that somebody would be awakened to profess Jesus as Lord. Lord, we pray that You would continue to save, Lord, that we would have continued baptisms, Lord, that we would often be at the river, Lord, that people would often be uniting to themselves to Jesus despite everything that we fear coming down the pike, Lord, that they would believe in Jesus more than fear being counted with Him, Lord. We pray Your blessings upon our church. In Jesus' name, Amen.